For sure. Sounds like practitioners uh, uh, in all areas are going to be spending a lot more time on these services than they used to. Yes, that is definitely true. Hello, and welcome to the seventh episode of First Chair, the e-discovery education podcast from Exact Data Discovery. I'm XDD's Director of Education and your host for this podcast, Matthew Verga. Each month on First Chair, we invite guest experts to sit down with me for 20 to 30 minute conversations about a single important e-discovery topic. From technology developments to legal developments to best practices and beyond, First Chair exposes you to experienced legal and technical practitioners and their expert insights into our continually evolving industry. Social media has become an indisputably influential part of American life, one on which more and more of our personal, professional, and political lives take place. Its impact upon e-discovery has grown and continues to grow proportionately. New types of ESI are showing up as relevant evidence, being drawn from new social media sources, containing new terminology and symbols, and being used in new types of cases. Our focus today is on a sampling of those recent cases to see what difficulties parties and practitioners are facing and how courts are addressing them. To help us learn about these social media case developments, our guest today is XDD Managing Director of Consulting Services, Liz Letak Esquire. As Managing Director of Consulting Services, Liz oversees cross-functional teams of lawyers, paralegals, analytics experts, and more, handling diverse e-discovery, litigation management, legal process outsourcing, and consulting projects. Liz has more than a decade of experience as a transactional attorney, as well as a deep knowledge of legal process optimization, including e-discovery, contracts management, and due diligence. Welcome, Liz, and thank you for joining us. Uh, thanks, Matthew. I'm really excited uh, to talk about uh, social media today. This is one of the hottest topics uh, whenever I'm speaking with clients. Absolutely. Certainly one we get a lot of inquiries about. So what have you learned uh, from social media case law over the last two years? I think there's really f- kind of five highlights, um, if you will. Uh, the first one is you know, information that someone else has posted about you on social media is definitely discoverable, uh, certainly in a civil action. And relatedly, uh, you know, a private message or a private network that you have on social media is also absolutely discoverable. Uh, Second, I'd say, you know, social media monitoring and collection really doesn't, you know, end with discovery. Uh, You know, you set yourself up for success during discovery, but, you know, as we're going to talk about, uh, that really um, extends past discovery. Third, uh, I think a really basic lesson, but so important, is that, you know, you should not forget to collect from all social media uh, pertaining to your client. And furthermore, you should utilize an expert when you do it, especially for complicated collections or for some of the new applications that we're seeing. Uh, Next, I think there's some really interesting applications that we've seen come out over the last two years for compliance purposes that could affect litigation. And last, and can't emphasize this enough, you really need to become your own expert in terms of social media and e-discovery because it's essential um, with how everything is evolving. 
Excellent. Thank you for setting a, a nice agenda for us. Let's uh, go ahead and dive into some of the cases that you've uh, selected for us to illustrate these points. Um, what cases uh, have you found that discuss the extension of discovery into that private information you talked about? Okay, so the first case, yeah, I've selected is Vasquez Santos v. Matthew, and this is a case that came from the New York Appellate Division. It was from this year, January of 2019. Uh, so this is a pretty standard personal injury case. Uh, the plaintiff in this case, Santos, was a semi-professional basketball player. Uh, he got into a car accident with the defendant, uh, Lena Matthew. And he claims that as a result of the accident, that he is no longer able to play basketball. And so, uh, you know, the defendant argued um, and presented to the court uh, that uh, they should admit these photos um, that came up on Facebook pertaining to Santos. And the defendant alleges that these photos were taken actually after the accident. Um, the plaintiff argued uh, in response that one, the photos were not taken uh, after the accident, but two, and I think this response is very interesting, uh, even if they were taken after the accident, they should not be admitted because he is not the person who put the photos on Facebook. And so, uh, you know, Vasquez refused to produce these photos. And so Matthew actually asked the lower court, you know, to compel access um, through a third-party data mining company uh, and had very limited requests only to the photographs and other evidence of the plaintiff engaging in physical activities. Um, so the request was really proportional and specific. Uh, the court actually denied that um, and Matthew appealed um, to the next level. And then unanimously, the appellate court reversed and allowed a, a limited discovery of the plaintiff's social media and noted really specifically private social media information can be discoverable to the extent that it either contradicts or conflicts the plaintiff's alleged restrictions, disabilities, or losses, or any other claims. So the court was very specific that, you know, if you, regardless of if you post photos on Facebook or if somebody else, those are discoverable and the court is most likely going to grant access. Um, and compel production of those. So um, ultimately, you know, the appellate court didn't care that Santos didn't personally take the photos um, and uh, they compelled him to produce them. And so was was the basis for them being uh, sort of within his possession, custody or control that he had been tagged in them, causing them to appear within his account space? Yes, that's exactly what happened. And so, you know, if you've ever been on Facebook or quite frankly, other social media like LinkedIn, um, you know, or Instagram or things like that, you, you log in and you'll receive a notification most of the time that you've been tagged or that somebody else has uploaded a photo of you and tagged you in it. And so, yes, that's exactly what happened here. He logged into Facebook and was, you know, realized that he was tagged on something. Uh, I also think it was really interesting. Um, the Vasquez court cited, uh, you know, a previous case um, that had been decided in uh, 2018, and that was Foreman v. Henkin. And so this was a case where Foreman had sued Henkin, um, a horse owner, following an equestri equestrian accident that she alleged caused cognitive uh, deficits, um, including that she had difficulty communicating. And so Foreman testified 
uh, that this was pre-injury, that she was accustomed to posting frequently on Facebook, you know, but couldn't anymore because of her cognitive disability. Uh, it would take her hours um, to write even a really simple post. And so uh, really interesting response from the defendant. The defendant argued that based on her pre-accident usage of social media, the post-accident Facebook account could actually contain evidence relevant to the credibility of her claim. Because if she's saying one of her cognitive defects is that you know, she's no longer to post on social media, specifically Facebook, and that was a huge part of her brand and life, that you know, that should be admitted into court, into evidence. And the plaintiff argued that only the public portion of her Facebook was discoverable, uh, not her private network. So that means, you know, on Facebook, you can actually, uh, you know, you, any post that you make, you can make it public, um, you can make it private, uh, you can make it so only you can see it, but you can store it on Facebook. So I think this was one of the second tier ones where um, it was not a public post. You could only see this if you had logged into her network. And the trial court actually partially granted the motion to compel some of these post-accident private photos um, and post-accident private messages uh, to prove that, um, you know, she actually was of sound mind and didn't have the injury that she was alleging that it did. Uh, what lessons can practitioners take away from those two cases? Number one, and most importantly, proportionality is key. Uh, both of these requests were very specific, uh, narrowly tailored, uh, and the courts uh, often refer to avoiding fishing expeditions uh, in their decisions um, and, uh, you know, any responses in court. And so very specifically request what is relevant to your case and don't just cast a wide net, uh, you know, in hopes that you're going to find something that you may not know exists. Uh, second, Courts really are tending to balance uh, the potential utility of the information against privacy concerns. And I think we see that, especially in the second case that we talked about, that it doesn't matter, uh, you know, if these photos are, quote, private or you have a private network, you know, if they are relevant to the case and uh, potentially diminish or mitigate claims, the court is most likely going to find a way um, to compel production of those. And then third, but, you know, and this is just a lesson in general, not even just for e-discovery, but, you know, anything that you put on social media that others can view is subject to discovery, period. <laughs> and so something probably we should all be thinking about, um, you know, uh, prior to posting anything on social media. The second item on your list of key points from recent case law on social media is that social media monitoring and collection doesn't end with discovery. Can you expand on that for us? Yes, absolutely. Uh, there has been a slew of cases recently that address attorney conduct uh, pertaining to social media. Um, one of them came out of Wisconsin in 2019. Um, it was a paternity case, which really doesn't um, have any bearing on uh, the lesson we're taking from it. But uh, you know, just for reference was paternity. Uh, this is where a judge actually accepted a Facebook friend request from a litigant during the trial. And the court found that there was a huge risk of actual bias and partiality, or at least the appearance of. So 
you know, lesson there, do not um, Facebook friend request your judge if you're in the middle of crap. <laughs> uh, second, <laughs> yeah, uh, probably obvious, but maybe not so much, you know, especially considering how LinkedIn works nowadays. So the second case is Hussein versus uh, United Service Auto Association. And unlike the Wisconsin case, um, you know, this case is out of Florida and it kind of went the opposite way, um, but a slight difference in the fact pattern. So there was an allegation um, of partiality because a judge was a Facebook friend um, with one of the attorneys who was making an appearance in the case. Um, and the court actually said that that was not sufficient um, for disqualification or, you know, for a new trial because uh, the friendship online had already existed. And so I think this is really interesting. Uh, there's other cases that address this too, you know, and most likely a lot of attorneys are going to run into this uh, because, you know, if you have Facebook friend requested um, people from law school or in your network, or you've logged on to LinkedIn and accepted connections, most likely at some point in time, you know, those people are going to um, become judges or political figures. And so you're going to be professionally connected with them. But I think the lesson here is do not um, connect on social media, either through you know, a friend request or a private message during trial. That's probably a bad idea. And so um, the majority state view here really is judges on social media need to proceed with caution and be very careful about how you are interacting with potential litigants on social media. And then second, uh, kind of the highlight here is that if you are researching a juror or witness in a trial, you also have to be very careful about how you are searching. And so uh, we can examine this in the context of the New York City Bar Association formal opinion um, that references uh, Rule 3.5A4. And so this actually discusses that attorneys can use search engines and social media services uh, to research potential and sitting jurors without violating the rules, assuming, and here's the key, that there is no communication that occurs. So for anyone who is privy to LinkedIn, uh, there are features that send people messages when another person has viewed their profile. And so, you know, what's being discussed here is that that actually might constitute communication. Uh, you know, so for example, uh, you know, if I were to log in and look at, you know, Matthew's profile, um, he might receive a message that says, Leslie Tack has viewed your profile. And so this is being addressed, you know, as firms are conducting research on jurors and witnesses that all of a sudden a witness logs into social media and sees that someone has viewed their profile. Um, so at the same time, though, you know, uh, the court has been very clear, um, as well as the New York um, City Bar Association, that you really should be passively monitoring the accounts of witnesses and jurors. Um, to ensure that you have access to any impropriety or something that would be useful for your case. So again, you set yourself up for success in discovery when you start documenting some of these social media items, you know, that you can follow throughout the course of the trial. But just be careful that you are not actually communicating with witnesses. And then I think the third highlight here is that, uh, you know, comes from lawsuits that result in internal investigations. So, for example, organizations like the Plainview Project um, have started to collect data 
regarding um, the content that police officers are putting on social media publicly. Um, and they have uh, historically screenshotted these public posts. And there's some discussion around whether um, organizations like this and other news agencies really need to guarantee authenticity of some of these posts. Um, and it also seems like there's uh, some of the most uh, damning screenshots have actually been taken during the investigation. Um, and so this makes it very difficult, you know, for an officer then to sue as a result of that internal investigation, you know, if they feel um, there's been defamation or libel, uh, you know, if this hasn't been authenticated. So I thought that was a really interesting application of this. For sure. Sounds like practitioners uh, uh, in all areas are going to be spending a lot more time on these services than they used to. Yes, that is definitely true. So changing tack a little bit, uh, what are some examples of types of social media collections that have helped uh, really make or break a case in the last few years? Oh, that's a great question. I think uh, Fitbit actually is one of the first ones that comes to mind um, after reviewing the case law for the last couple of years. Uh, you know, we don't really think of Fitbit as a social media tool, um, but, you know, I'd also put um, an app like Strava in this category. Um, I actually use Strava. It's a fitness uh, tracking app. But um, both of those also actually have functionality um, where you can engage with other people in the community and comment on um, other people's fitness posts. So that's why we consider that social media. Uh, in the example of Fitbit, there was a really interesting um, murder case that came out of San Jose um, where a lot of evidence actually hinged on um, uh, data that the Fitbit had collected and potential evidence from the Fitbit community um, app feature. And so uh, in this case, the Fitbit had recorded data uh, when the victim um, stopped taking steps and then her heart rate accelerated um, as the prosecution uh, argued at the time of the murder. Um, and so I, th I think that's really interesting. We don't think to collect um, from things like that. So, you know, I could see Fitbit and Strava being relevant in personal injury cases as well, um, you know, if you're depending on the claims that you have. Uh, second, really interesting um, uh, category, and I think that, you know, this helps make or break a lot of cases, is Slack. Um, you know, I know we've we've recently done a webinar on that. There's been lots of discussion um, with our forensics team in terms of how to collect from Slack and best practices. And uh, I think the first case that uh, comes to mind with regards to Slack is Calendar Research um, v. StubHub. And this was in March of 2019. So in Calendar Research, the plaintiff had filed a discovery motion seeking production of Slack messages from two individual defendants. And the plaintiffs had learned that these two defendants had produced um, Slack email notifications, um, which basically alert users to the pending messages, but they don't actually contain the messages themselves. So these are the same type of notifications if you have them set up for, you know, Facebook and Instagram, you might receive, or LinkedIn, you know, you might receive an email saying, uh, you know, so-and-so has viewed your profile or so-and-so has sent you a message, log on to the platform to see it. Um, so that was the case here. And so the defendants produced the alerts um, at first, but not the actual messages. And they were also late in producing some of the messages because they argued that they had technical problems that they experienced uh, trying to export messages from Slack. Uh, so, you know, going back there to utilizing an expert, it's 
essential, um, and in this case, uh, really harms them. As a side note, uh, also really interesting that free corporate accounts for Slack actually don't have some of the retention capabilities that a premium account has. So you've got to be really careful if you're a corporation and you're utilizing that free account or you know a startup, you you might not have the collection capabilities that you think you have um, because the data might not be saved. And so in this case, in calendar research, uh, they had issues because Slack actually would not give the defendants a complete export from the corporate account um, because uh, they hadn't purchased, um, I think, the upgraded version, and two, uh, because the users actually weren't parties to the litigation, and so uh, they argued that they hadn't given their consent. So I think lessons that we can learn from here is one, use a collection expert. And then two, prior to purchasing software, you know, really make sure that you have the proper retention protocols and capabilities because it can have a real effect on your litigation down the line. You said one of the lessons from that case was that you think it's very important to use a collection expert for these sorts of activities. Can you give us another example of a situation in which using an expert for social media materials uh, had a real impact? That is definitely uh, Milbeck uh, v. True Car would be a great example of that. Um, this is where the court denied the plaintiff's motion to compel production of relevant Slack messages, and it focused on the disproportionality of the request. And so the defendant's uh, production wasn't going to be finished until after discovery had ended. And uh, the way that they um, alleged this or proved this is that they had a project manager from their vendor submit um, a declaration in the case. And, you know, afterwards, a lot of people were questioning um, some of the uh, statements in the declaration. Like, for example, um, I believe it was about 1.7 gigabytes or 1.67 gigabytes of data, but the declaration didn't address the process for collection, um, any attempts to filter the data, and the type of data, i.e., you know, the, if this was coming from Slack, you know, whether it was text, images, attachments, you know, because Slack has the functionality for all of those. Yeah, so they, uh, the declaration actually hinged on, um, they claimed in a separate matter that 100 megabytes, uh, you know, which is smaller than gigabytes, resulted in 1.7 million messages and took uh, a week and a half to process. And so, uh, you know, had the other side produced, um, you know, a declaration that called that into question or at least asked a few more questions that, uh, you know, they, uh, it could have completely changed the case. Uh, and so, you know, because the plaintiff didn't submit that declaration, you know, the court really was forced to adopt the conclusions of the defendant. And so really, you know, the lesson here is hire an expert, um, you know, because the ruling probably would have been much different um, if the plaintiff had an expert review. And two, make sure that you make requests uh, you know, proportionate, because if maybe there was a smaller amount of data that they requested, the declaration might not have stood in court. Uh, at the beginning of our discussion, you also mentioned that you've come across some interesting compliance issues from the last two years. Could you tell us about some of those? Yes. Uh, I think one of the most interesting cases um, that didn't actually uh, result in a ruling um, was Waymo v. Uber. Um, and this was in 2018. 
Uh, so this pertains to ephemeral messaging. Um, and by the way, this is often nicknamed, uh, you know, EMA, which stands for ephemeral messaging application. Uh, and basically what that means is any type of message that will ultimately disappear. Um, so if you think of something like Snapchat, uh, you know, you can upload um, an image and it disappears after a certain amount of time. Or if you send a message to somebody else, it disappears after a certain amount of seconds. And so that's what we're kind of talking about here in this case. And so in this case, uh, you know, Waymo had claimed Uber stole its self-driving vehicle technology. Um, and they alleged that they utilized an app called Wicker um, and Telegram to actually eliminate relevant evidence. Uh, and that th both of those apps have um, ephemeral messaging capabilities. And so they ended up settling four days into trial. Um, and ultimately, Uber gave a percentage of ownership to Waymo. Um, and as a side note, that, was, that ownership was valued at approximately $245 million. Uh, so you can infer, uh, you know, what you want from that data. Uh, but basically, you know, what Uber tried to argue is that ephemeral messaging has legitimate business uses. And this was really one of the first times that someone had alleged this uh, in court or a surrounding proceeding. And so um, as a result, we've kind of seen a proactive approach of some of these EMAs arguing that their applications are great for compliance. Um, the DOJ actually removed the outright um, prohibition against EMAs in um, March of uh, 2019 for corporate compliance. And then we're seeing companies like VaporStream actually specifically market um, to healthcare companies that secure messaging and messaging that disappears can actually improve compliance with HIPAA, um, which I think is really interesting. And um, we're also seeing a lot of applications actively design features, you know, to help with data retention requirements and delete messages that, you know, should not be retained. Um, Slack, as we've talked about, has that premium version that offers more retention. Um, and then last, really interesting application as well, is that we're starting to see um, colleges and universities consider um, the utilization of EMAs um, and collections from EMAs. Uh, when they monitor for issues like sexual harassment or intellectual property violations. And so basically uh, what happens is if anything is flagged, you know, pursuant to the system, you know, you would kind of come up with search terms like, you know, in an e-discovery case. Uh, and then anything that falls under those search terms uh, would be retained um, or flagged around them. And then if not, they would be destroyed. So I think that could have really interesting app uh, applications for colleges, universities with Title IX violations, and also kind of like we saw earlier in calendar research, you know, misappropriation of trade secrets. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, turning to, I guess, your final point from the beginning, why do you think it's important for attorneys to become their own experts with regards to social media sources? I think first and foremost, like we saw in, you know, calendar research that we just talked about in Santos, um, it really might make or break your trial strategy. Uh, you know, if you are not familiar with what social media your client or, you know, opposing party has and how it functions. Um, and then second, uh, you know, we haven't talked about this yet, but really it can affect the duty to preserve and adequate client notice. Um, so in Nuvasiv, um, Inc. v. Cormanis, uh, this was in March of 2019, um, this was a case where uh, the attorney actually properly advised 
um, the client to turn off a 30-day iPhone auto-delete function, um, but uh, the client failed to do so, and so there was an adverse jury instruction regarding that. Uh, and so I think the lesson from there is, you know, auto-delete doesn't just apply to EMAs um, and things like Slack. You know, smartphones have that functionality too. And if you're an attorney in a litigation, uh, it is incumbent upon you to inform your client uh, to retain anything that could be pertaining to uh, the litigation. And so the way to avoid sanctions um, is to provide that notice very clearly um, so that if your client ends up violating that rule, you are not held accountable. All right, so last thing, uh, you know, why I would advise attorneys to become your own expert is that uh, you need to be aware that altering content or scrubbing it on Facebook, you know, or any other type of social media is very bad. Uh, and, uh, you know, there was a case from a few years ago, uh, Lester v. Allied Concrete Company, um, where an, one of the attorneys was actually fined over $500,000 um, for directing a client to clean up um, his Facebook page during a pending litigation. Uh, the parties were sanctioned, all sorts of other things happened. So definitely do not advise your client to uh, scrub content um, in the middle of litigation. Uh, relatedly, and this is a little bit more of a nuanced point, um, the courts ha haven't said anything about um, whether changing something from public to private settings alters content. But uh, there has been a case within the last, uh, you know, couple of years where a judge has instructed um, a litigant not to touch a social media account, and then a litigant changed something from public to private, and so the judge scolded that litigant. So be very careful, you know, in terms of advising your clients about that, but normally, you know, no court has said when you change that, those settings, you know, from where everyone in your network can see something to then only you or someone else. It doesn't alter content, but, you know, it might make your judge mad in the case if you've been expected not to do so. <laughs> Excellent advice. I, I always find it interesting that uh, every time a, a new media arises as a potential source, it turns briefly back into the Wild West. No one would think it was okay to go through a filing cabinet and throw out bad documents before a trial, but put it on a computer on a <laughs> yeah. website that's relatively new and all of a sudden all bets are off, at, at least for a little while. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Excellent observation. <laughs> Well, Liz, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to share these cases and your insights with our audience. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed being on. Um, and thank you, everyone, for listening. We look forward to having you back. Thank you once again to our guest today, Liz Letak, for taking time out of her busy schedule to share those insights with us. And thank you to all of you for joining us for another episode of First Chair. If you'd like further information about social media and e-discovery or other topics, please check out our libraries of free articles, practice guides, white papers, and webinars in the Learn section of our website at exactdatadiscovery.com. That's exact, X-A-C-T. Next month, First Chair will be taking a holiday break, but First Chair will return with new episodes in 2020. XDD wishes you and yours a joyful holiday season and a happy new year. XDD, because you need to know.